بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Major brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. So inshallah we're going to be continuing our discussion uh, with reflections on Surah Al-Hujurat. We left off at ayah number 9 last week. Ayah number 9, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings forth something very profound. And this is something we briefly touched upon last week and we'll continue today. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اقْتَتَلُوا That if two groups of believers begin to fight one another. So we spoke last week that just because someone is Muslim, it doesn't mean that they'll always act accordingly. It doesn't mean they'll always have the best character and best conduct. And here we see that two groups of Muslims, again the emphasis is on two groups of Muslims, are fighting one another. So what is our responsibility towards these groups? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us two responsibilities. Responsibility number one is to rectify between them and to reconcile between them. So if you see two groups of people fighting one another, it is a Muslim's responsibility to attempt to reconcile between them. Now, in terms of this reconciliation, what is actually required? What's interesting is that if you look at how the Prophet ﷺ discusses instances where you are allowed to lie, reconciliation is one of them. The Prophet ﷺ mentions in the hadith which is translated as that there are three times where it is permissible to lie. In times of war, to reconcile between two groups, and for a spouse to one another, to keep them pleased. And this is just, you know, the, the, the tiny lies that we would consider. You know, how do I look today? You look fantastic. How is the food? It was great. Those sort of things, right? I mean, it's not... Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give this with a caveat. It shouldn't be done on a daily basis. Like if you're doing this on a daily basis, something is wrong. This is like in that once in a while, someone puts in a lot of effort and they still fell short, then at that time, you know, taking a, a person's feelings into consideration is very, very important. So now here the Prophet says, you're even allowed to, to lie in, in order to reconcile between people. And this shows how beneficial it is. Now let's look at the opposite side. When does shaitan become the happiest? Shaitan becomes the happiest when two groups of people separate from one another. So every week and every night the Prophet tells us that shaitan gathers the shayateen together and ask them, what did you achieve today? What did you accomplish today? And then when one finally says that I separated a husband from his wife, that is when shaitan celebrates that, that you finally did something good. So this shows us, number one, the virtue of something, and number two, also the danger of something, of splitting up. So the responsibility of the believer is to reconcile between people as much as is possible, particularly between groups. Now groups become very, very important over here, because groups mean that various parts of the community are involved. It's not just individuals, it's not just a husband and wife. It means groups of community or groups of people from the community are involved in this. Now this ayah in particular was in uh, reference to the Aus and the Khazraj. Aus and Khazraj were two major tribes during the time of the Prophet ﷺ that were constantly at war. And when the Prophet ﷺ brought them to Islam and they accepted Islam, they still had this animosity and this hatred from their times of war. So the Prophet ﷺ is further encouraged to reconcile between them. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us a second obligation. That second obligation is that if one of them transgresses against the other, if one of them goes beyond the means and beyond the bounds against the other, we have a responsibility here as well. And that is to fight back against that group that is being oppressive. To fight back against that group that is being oppressive. And I think this part, the second part, is even more important 
than the first part. Now I'll explain why. Because the first part, a lot of people know the good deeds and virtues of reconciling between people, and people make an effort to do that. But what ends up happening is that when there becomes a clear transgressor, and they transgress, the reconciling party will usually step back and become complacent. They're like, you know what? I don't think we want to get involved anymore. Let them figure out themselves. But here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to fight back against that group that is being transgressive. Fight back against that group that is being transgressive. So you cannot be complacent, you cannot be apathetic, but you have a responsibility to fight back. Now if you were to look at this, I mean if we were to talk about our community for example, we know that certain organizations, certain groups are constantly engaged with conflict with one another. Now as community members, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility according to this ayah is to do what we are capable of in trying to reconcile between people. Do what we are capable of between reconciling between people. Now if you feel that you become in a situation when you are no longer capable of helping, then your responsibility at that time is to encourage those that can help. Is to encourage those that can help. So there's always some level of involvement for the community members at that time. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives this as a precursor to ayah number 10. Because he says that regardless of groups are fighting one another, you have to key, remember one thing in mind. That the believers are nothing but brothers. So as soon as someone accepts Islam, they have rights upon you that need to be fulfilled. They have rights upon you that need to be fulfilled. From those rights that are mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ mentions five of them. That when they give salams, you respond to those salams. When they are sick, you visit them. When they pass away, you pray their janazah. When they invite you, you answer their invitation. And then, um, what was the last one? When they say Alhamdulillah and sneeze, when they sneeze and say Alhamdulillah, you say Yarhamukallah. This is mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari. In Sahih Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ adds one more. That if they ask for your advice, you give your sincere advice in terms of what you are capable of. Now the rights of believers don't just end over here, but in other hadith, the Prophet ﷺ mentions other things. Do not oppress one another, do not cheat one another, do not betray one another, but rather be brothers, slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are all from the rights of the people. Now what's interesting is that always when the rights of people are mentioned, you're going to see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives a reminder. Wattaqullah. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says over here. إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةٌ فَأَصْلِحُ بَيْنَ أَخَوَيْكُمْ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ That be conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in hopes that you may attain mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remind us to be conscious of Him when it comes to the rights of other people? Why does Allah ask us to be conscious of Him when it comes to the rights of other people? That is my question for you. Yep. Because this, uh, this rights have to, if they're wrong, only the person can forgive him. Even Allah SWT will not uh, forgive him unless they die for him. Okay, very good point. So our brother mentions over here that when it comes to the rights of the people, if you transgress human rights, that human has to forgive you before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can forgive you. Thus Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds you to be conscious of him. That's one side of it. Can we get another perspective? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's the so it, it's a sin to transgress the boundaries of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a sin. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying before you get to that boundary, be very conscious. Can we get a third volunteer to share their opinion? 
When it comes to the rights of the people, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remind us to have taqwa? Go ahead. Just so you don't oppress them. So you never be the oppressing party. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding you to do that. Another perspective and the perspective that I would like to share is that when it comes to the rights of people, there's a lot of gray area. We will never really know always what is the right thing to do. So when it comes to those gray matters and you have to make a decision, you know what? Should I be extra kind? Should I be extra compassionate? Should I be extra merciful? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us to have taqwa as an encouragement to go that extra step. To be extra compassionate, to be extra merciful, to be extra thankful and grateful. That is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us of. And when you do that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ In hopes that you may have mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now why is the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so important? Because another hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, he mentions that none of us will enter Jannah through our deeds. But we will only enter Jannah through the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So those deeds that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you that you will attain His mercy, then those are the deeds that you should strive for because that is how you enter into paradise. That is how you enter into paradise. And one of the greatest ways to attain the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to show mercy to others. And mercy to others is an act of interaction, of dealing between people, and thus it ties in perfectly. It ties in perfectly. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on in ayah number 11 to start talking about specific things that will harm brotherhood and sisterhood. Specific themes that harm one another. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا مِنْ قَوْمٍ عَسَىٰ مِنْهُمْ That oh you group of men who believe do not mock one another, lest that those that you mock are better than you. And oh you group of women who believe, do not mock other women, lest that the women that you are mocking are better than you. Now there's a general principle in the Sharia, that whatever applies to men in the Sharia, also applies to women. Unless there's a clear and explicit text to indicate otherwise. That is the general rule. So now when Mufassirun look at an ayah like this, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeat himself twice, one towards the men and once towards the women? The Mufassirun mention over here something very important. The first time that the men are mentioned, it is inclusive of both men and women. And the second time when only the women are mentioned, this is an extra emphasis for the women because this is something that will tend to happen, happen more amongst the women. This mocking and belittling and commenting on other people and commenting on other people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that extra emphasis particularly to women that they should be careful on how they deal with other women and how they should not mock them or belittle them. They should not mock them or belittle them. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say, وَلَا تَلْمِزُوا أَنفُسُكُمْ وَلَا تَنَابَزُوا بِالْأَلْقَابِ so if you were to translate this first section, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not belittle yourself. Do not belittle yourself. And you may think, we're talking about the rights of other people. Why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking about me now? And the answer to that question is how you understand yourself. And there's two perspectives to understand over here. Perspective number one, that when you're mocking your brother, when you're uh, belittling your brother or sister, you're actually belittling yourself. Because the believers are like one body. We're all like one body. If I mock you, in reality I'm mocking myself. Another perspective that the Prophet ﷺ gives us, 
He says that the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is upon those people that curse their parents. The curse of Allah is upon those people that curse their parents. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum were confused. They said, O Messenger of Allah, how could a person curse their parents? And the Prophet explains that when you curse someone else's parents, then they curse your parents back. And that is how you have cursed your parents. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that when you belittle other people, other people will belittle you. And that is how you're belittling yourself by belittling other people. A third perspective that it's not really mentioned in the books of tafsir, but is my own personal reflection, is that it is tiny minds that actually belittle people. People that have insecurities, people that aren't confident in themselves, people that have their own internal issues that will belittle other people and will belittle their struggles. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is as if He is saying that when you are belittling other people, you're actually little yourself. You're actually tiny inside and inferior inside yourself. And for me, this is something very important as well, that when you look at these characteristics that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning, these aren't characteristics of the believer. To mock other people, to belittle other people, to call other people names, to backbite other people, to spy other people. These are not things that the believers should be doing. This is an individual that does not care about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala per se, but more than that, they will have a lot of insecurities themselves. They will have a lot of insecurities themselves. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes the ayah by saying, وَلَا تَنَابَزُوا بِالْأَلْقَابِ And do not call one another by names that are not beloved to those people. So this is in terms of the way that we address ourselves. So once we became close brothers, and we're constantly going to the masjid, we're constantly hanging out, we become good friends, we're going to start to develop nicknames for one another. And that's normally and generally what happens between friends. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making sure we understand do not call people except by the names that are most beloved to them. Do not call people except by the names that are most beloved to them. And this ties in perfectly to the beginning of the surah when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds the believers do not call Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa by Muhammad but rather refer to him as Rasulullah. Refer to him as Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa That is how he should be addressed. So for the likes of ourselves as well, we should keep in mind that we should call people by the names that are most beloved to them. Call people by the names that are most beloved to them. And the closer the relationship, then the more endearing the term that should be. So the Prophet ﷺ calling Aisha radiallahu anha, Aish and Humaira, two beloved names to Aisha radiallahu anha. Looking at Ali radiallahu anhu, he was Abu al-Hasan, but he was also Abu Turab. And the story behind Abu Turab, you know, is a, is a, is a story between Muhammad Wasallam and Ali radiallahu anhu. So this is like something that they had amongst themselves. So these are terms of endearment that the Prophet Wasallam is using. And he used it for his companions that were close to him and for his wives. So this is a, a reminder for us to make sure that particularly for those that are close to us, we refer to them with the most endearing of names. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes the ayah by saying, How evil it is for a person to go to these traits after they've confessed iman. How evil it is for a person to sin after they've confessed iman. And whoever does not repent, then they are from the oppressors. 
So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us that once you have claimed faith, once you have claimed Islam, then you have a responsibility to correct your character and to perfect it. You may have not known it before Islam, but once you have accepted Islam, you have to rectify your character. And this is a very valuable point because we learn over here that Islam is not just about praying and fasting and giving sadaqah and giving zakat, but it is about the way we interact with one another. And the way we interact with one another needs to be at the exact same level of our worship, if not higher, if not higher. The Prophet ﷺ promises a house in the highest of paradise, and the highest of paradise to the individual that strives hard to perfect their character. The Prophet ﷺ, he tells us, shall I not inform you through which you will attain the, the likes of the individual who fasts during the day and prays during the night. Strive hard to perfect your character. So there's multiple rewards for this. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasized over here. That if you claim Iman, you should have good character. It's not befitting that you do not have good character if you claim to have Iman. And this is something, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you. Something that happened today. So I went to go visit someone today. And they had just come back from their home country. And their sister had, you know, passed away. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon her. She got liver cancer and within three weeks, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took her life. And in the three weeks, they spent majority of the time in the hospital. And they were just grieving over the fact how terrible the treatment was in the hospital. That depending on your level of income, they would treat you that way. Not as if there's a, a system that you can pay more and you can get better treatment, no. Based upon how you, well your family was known or how much money your family had, they would treat you better in hopes that you would give a tip to the nurse or the doctor or whoever after you know, they've taken care of you. Number two, they mentioned the doctors that they only work part of their shifts and they go and work privately later on to get extra money. So you'll see the doctor for two or three minutes during the daytime, you never see the doctor again. And they mentioned other atrocities that even when the, the, the nurses are coming to see you, they're coming with disgruntled faces. They're not happy, they're not cheerful. Whereas when you look at medical science, the impact of the smile upon the patient is huge. That's like part of the cure that the doctor and the nurse should be interacting cheerfully. Yet in this Muslim country, their whole experience for the whole three weeks was a miserable one because everyone was not acting in according to Islam. And he said something profound, that this was the trip where I always used to think that, you know what, one day I want to move back to my country, I want to move back to my country. But this trip made me you know, confident that, you know what, I can go back to visit, but I can never live there. I can never live there. Because you are meant to practice Islam, and it hurts you even more when you don't see Muslims acting in according to Islam. So this is a reminder for us all that wherever we are, particularly in the public sphere, particularly when it comes to interacting with people, it's not just our own individual reputations that are on the line. It is the reputation of Islam that's on the line. It is a reputation of Islam that is on the line. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes by saying, and whoever does not repent, then they are surely from the oppressors. So repentance over here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasizes that even when the believer makes a mistake, there is a way out for them. And that is by repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The people may not always necessarily forgive you, but you will always find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiving. And that is why the individual that does not repent is oppressive. 
Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, seek forgiveness from me, repent to me, and I will forgive you. Repent to me, and I will forgive you. Now we've discussed the conditions of repentance many, many times, so I'm not going to go into detail about them. But number one, it should be sincerely for the sake of Allah. Number two, you give up the sin that you're committing immediately. Number three, you make the intention not to return to that sin. Number four, you feel some remorse or regret. Number five, if you've taken the rights of the people, you give it back to them. And we'll talk about this a little more in the next ayah. And number six, it is before death or before the sun rises from the west. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on into the next ayah. Ya yuhalladhina amanu jtanibu kathiran min al-dhan inna ba'da al-dhanni ithim. That all you who believe, stay away from much suspicion, for indeed some suspicion is sinful. For indeed some suspicion is sinful. So now how do we understand this concept of suspicion over here? Suspicion or dhan rather, is a, a part of a spectrum. If you have ignorance on one side and knowledge on one side, shak comes 50% in the middle. It means you don't know what is wrong, you don't know what is right, that's what shak is in the middle. Then between shak and ilm, ilm being pure knowledge, dhan comes in the middle over there. So shak is 50% doubt and then dhan is about 75% on the way to knowledge. That you're pretty certain, you're pretty sure that's what it is, but you're not 100% sure. You're pretty sure, but not 100% sure. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, stay away from that 75%. Why? Because that 75%, most of the times, it'll just stay in your mind, it'll stay in your heart, it'll stay in your head. It won't really impact your actions. It won't really impact your actions. But that few times where it impacts your actions, you're going to end up doing something which you will regret. You will end up doing something which you will regret. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says some suspicion is sinful. And that suspicion that Allah is talking about is that when you act without certainty, or you act without what they call غَلْبَةُ dhan, Meaning that the dhan becomes so high that it's almost yaqeen, it's almost certainty. So without reaching that stage, one should not take action. One should not take action, but always verify and learn more before you say something and before you do something. Because how many times are people suspicious and they say something and they do something and they're wrong? And perhaps they end up breaking up a marriage or they end up breaking up a community or they end up breaking up a family or they end up breaking up an institution. All of this because they did not take the time to verify. So verifying and learning more is always important. And what ends up happening is that in this process of wanting to verify and learn more, you may end up taking a measure which is also sinful, which is spying upon other people, which is spying upon other people. The Islamic definition of spying is to seek in information that you do not have permission to seek and the other person you know likes to keep it private. The other person likes to keep it private. So that is what tajassus is, that is what spying is. So on a practical level, peeking inside someone's window, that is something that is not allowed, it is completely haram to do that. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ tells us that if you have a door that has a hole in it and you see someone peeking through that hole, you have the right to poke that hole so that people don't look into that hole. And you have the right to poke them at that time. So that's one element to it.
But now when you get into a technological age, there's so many examples of this. So you're sitting on a plane, you're in the middle seat, and you're on your phone. If you've ever had this situation, you understand how annoying it is. The person on your left is trying to look at what are you doing on your phone. This is a form of tajassus. I'm trying to write a private email. Someone's trying to look at what I'm actually trying to write. I'm trying to send a message that's private. They're trying to see what I'm writing. And it's not just about the plane. It can be at a restaurant. It can be at the masjid. It can be anywhere. So if someone's doing something on their phone, don't try to sneak a peek as to what they're doing. That's their business. If they want to show it to you, they'll show it to you. This applies between spouses as well. You have access to your spouse's computer, to their phone. It doesn't give you the right to go through their emails or to go through their messages. If you know they've considered that private, you need to seek permission first before you can get access to it. You can't just jump on into private uh, information even though they may have left it open. Someone leaving something open is not permission to go and look into it. Someone leaving something open is not permission to go into it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that if you need to verify information, don't do it by spying upon one another. Rather, discuss things with those people that are qualified for discussion. And then go and find other ways that are permissible to get that extra information. But the vast majority of times, if it doesn't concern you, leave it alone. If it doesn't concern you, leave it alone. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say, وَلَا يَغْتَبْ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَحْمَ أَخِيهِ مَيْتًا فَكَرِحْتُمُهُ That, and do not backbite one another. Do not backbite one another. Would any of you love to eat the dead flesh of your brother or sister? You would hate it, so hate backbiting. So hate backbiting. So hate backbiting. And this I cannot emphasize enough. Because it is a sin of the tongue, it is something that happens so easily. And if you look at the definition that the Prophet ﷺ gave the companions, he says, That it is to mention something about your brother or sister, that which they dislike. They said, O Messenger of Allah, what if we actually find this in the individual? What we're saying is actually true. The Messenger of Allah ﷺ said, Then you have backbitten the individual. And if what you have said is not true, then you have slandered the individual. So slander is worse than backbiting. Backbiting is saying something true about your brother or sister. And slander is to say something that is untrue about them. Now let us look at some of the matters pertaining to backbiting. Number one, does backbiting happen in speech only? And the answer to that is no. We have the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, where she says that one day she was with the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and she pointed out with her hand how short Safiya is. And the Prophet وسلم, said that you have said something that if it was mixed with the oceans, it would turn it black. And this shows us that backbiting is not just not with our tongue, but it happens with our gestures as well. The gestures that we make about people commenting on them, this is considered backbiting. And in Islam, it is a major sin. Kabiratun min al kabair. So I want you to think about murder. I want you to think about zina. I want you to think about alcohol. I want you to think about shirk. This is the category that is falling into. This is the category that is falling into. So the preservation of the tongue from the honor of others is so important. Number two is that how do you make tawbah from backbiting? How do you make tawbah from backbiting? 
So we're talking about if you took the rights of people, you have to give those rights back. How do you give the right back of backbiting? The scholars mention three things. Number one is that you seek forgiveness for that individual. You ask Allah to forgive that individual. Number two is that in the same gathering that you backbit the individual, you mention something good about them. You mention something good about them. And then number three, and this is the difficult one, that you actually go and apologize and free yourself from that sin. You actually go and apologize and free yourself from that sin. Now this third part has a caveat to it, and that is that it shouldn't lead to a bigger sin. So if you know someone has a very aggressive temper, and that if you were to go and tell them this, they would become you know, aggressive towards you or resent you for a very, very long time, then in that situation, perhaps, don't go and tell them what happened and just fulfill the first two. But if you don't know, or you know the individual to be a very gentle and soft person that fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then in that situation, go up to them and seek their forgiveness and seek their pardon. And there's an incentive in that for them as well. That when they forgive and pardon, they're earning Allah's forgiveness and pardon as well. And all of us need that. And all of us need to that. So this is a very valuable lesson for us. The last thing I'll mention on this issue is that inshallah today, someone takes this to heart and they remember that they've backbitten someone. And if they come and apologize to you today, you have to be the better person. Be very easygoing, be very gentle. Don't ask them where they did it. Don't ask them who they did it with. Don't ask them what were the circumstances. Say Jazakallah khair, may Allah reward you for having the courage to do this. I pray that Allah forgives both of us. I pray that Allah forgives both of us. And that's how you handle this gracefully. And that's what we want to aim to achieve. That even when our brothers and sisters make mistakes against us, we should be the ones that are more graceful. We should be the ones that are more gracious towards them. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say, uh, And be conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the acceptor of repentance and the most merciful. Again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us of being conscious of Allah. Why? Because at certain times, you won't know, hey, I'm actually backbiting. Is it not backbiting? Where does this fall into? Fall into the side of caution. That is what Allah is saying. If you're uncertain, then stay away from it. Be conscious of Allah. Allah will reward you for that. That when you be, are more cautious in dealing with your brothers and sisters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you for that. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to talk about all of humanity. So these ayat were particularly to the believers. They started off with, in the mu'minuna ikhwa, ya ayyuhalladheena amanu. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changes the pace and says, Ya ayyuhal nas, inna khalaqnaakum min dhakarin wa untha, wa ja'alnaakum shu'uban wa qaba'ila li ta'arafu, inna akramakum indallahi atqaakum. That, O oh mankind, we created you from one pair of people, Adam and Hawa, and from them we created many tribes and nations. Many tribes and nations. Now you may think that Allah created many tribes and nations, it must be to compete with one another, right? It must be to compete with one another. That's not what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. He says, So that you may get to know one another and appreciate one another. That the noblest of all of us are those that are more conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
So now what do we learn from this? Our difference in cultures, our difference in languages, our difference in ethnicities, all of this is a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of this is to show the great ability of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how from two people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created all of the ethnicities in the room. From two people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created all of the cultures, all of the languages, all of the different foods, all of the different artwork, all of the different styles, all of the different things that we appreciate about culture, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created that from two individuals. To show us His greatness, to make us more appreciative and more grateful. And to also show us that just because you're from a particular tribe, or from a particular culture, or from a different background, it doesn't make your culture or my culture more superior than anyone else's. And this is indirectly talking about that racism that exists in our community. How often we will hear, oh, they're Arabs, they're prone to so-and-so. Or how often we will hear, oh, they're Pakistanis or Bengalis or Indians, you know, they're so-and-so. Oh, this person's a white convert, oh, you know, they, they must be so-and-so. This person's a black convert or comes from Africa, oh, they must be so-and-so. This prejudice and this racism and this ignorance, literally it's ignorance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to get rid of it. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wattaqullah. The best people are those that have the most taqwa. Those are the best people. You want to make your you know, tribe, your culture precedent and the best? Incite taqwa in your people. When your people have taqwa, then claim to be the best. But you will see that the people of taqwa will never claim to be the best. Because they will be humble with people. So if you start becoming aiming for the best, make sure you also humble yourself at the same time. Because that is what taqwa is meant to do. And it's interesting over here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the reward over here for taqwa. Because we've heard the concept of taqwa so many times. That if you want to be the close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you want to be the best in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you want to be loved and endeared by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then in akramakum, in Allah yatqaqum. The closest to Allah, the most beloved people to Allah, will be those that are most conscious to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives this as an advice to all of mankind. It's very interesting that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is even reminding the non-believers over here to be conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For them, their consciousness should lead them to Islam. For the believer, the consciousness of Allah should lead to better character. So a very interesting perspective in this ayah over here. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to talk about the Bedouin Arabs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke about at the beginning of the ayah. Where he says, That these Bedouin Arabs come to you, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa saying, we have believed, we have brought iman. But rather Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa tell them, you have only submitted, you have only bought, brought Islam, you haven't brought Iman yet. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala introduces something profound to us over here. And that is a principle in tafsir, that when Iman or Islam is mentioned in isolation. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna ikhwa, The believers are nothing but brothers. It's in isolation. Islam is not mentioned in the ayah. Only Iman is mentioned in that ayah. Iman and Islam will include and encompass one another. Iman and Islam will include and encompass one another. And that will mean that there is Islam over there. It will mean Islam over there. However, when Iman and Islam are brought together in one ayah 
or in one sequence of ayahs, one after another in an ayah, then they will have two distinct meanings. Islam being the lower level, which is to just commit to the five pillars of Islam, and Iman being the higher level. And that higher level is an individual whose conduct and character is impacted by the articles of faith. So their belief in Allah, their belief in the Prophets, their belief in the books, their belief in the angels, their belief in the Day of Judgment, and their belief in the Qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's an impact on their character, that is who the people of Iman are. So in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that these Bedouin Arabs, these nomads are coming to you and saying, we have believed, rather tell them you have only submitted. Tell them you have only submitted. Now why is this relevant over here? Because these, tri these Bedouin men, they want to go with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam on his expeditions. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling them that these individuals are not ready to go. They've barely just accepted Islam. They're going to be a liability if you take them on an expedition. And here we learn a very valuable lesson that not everyone that wants to be a part of something is actually worthy of being a part of it. And there's certain, you know, things that you can only take qualified people for. And that is where you should have that criterion of what qualification looks like. So an individual wants to jump in into very high advanced knowledge, yet they haven't even learned the basics yet. It is the teacher's responsibility to let the student know you're not ready yet. You have to keep growing, you have to keep developing, and inshallah one day you will become ready, but right now you're not ready. So everything has to have that gradual progress, and this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us of with these nomads. That let them know they have only submitted, they have not taken their faith to the highest level. Which is also a reminder for us that where are our goals for our faith? We should never become complacent in where we are. And we should constantly seek to grow and to improve in all aspects. And one of the best ways to do that is to continuously seek knowledge. As long as you're continuously seeking knowledge, you will continue to grow, you'll continue to develop. But as soon as you stop seeking knowledge, then that is where your personal development will also stop and hinder. And this also means your ibadah as well. If you're praying five times a day, don't stop there. Try to pray your sunnah prayers. Try to pray your nawafat. Try to pray your qiyam al-layl and your tahajjud. You fast in Ramadan, try to fast the 13th, 14th, and 15th of every month. Try to fast Mondays and Thursdays. Try to fast the other virtuous days of fasting as well. You give your zakat, Try to give out sadaqah as well. Try to give out loans to people. Do whatever you can. Try to develop on where you are already. And as you continue to develop and as you continue to grow, your own personal life gets better and the higher levels of Jannah become more accessible for you. The higher levels of Jannah become more accessible for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say that if you were to embrace what Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tells you wholeheartedly, then any of your deeds will not be discounted. Meaning that just because the Messenger of Allah is not letting you go on this expedition, it doesn't mean that the other deeds that you've been doing, like praying and fasting, have been null and void. But rather Allah will accept those, just continue working on yourself, just continue working upon yourself. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to talk about who the true believers are. إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ Indeed, the believers are only those that believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, believe in His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa do not have any doubt, 
and sacrifice themselves and sacrifice their wealth for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are who the believers are. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the belief starts with belief in Allah, belief in the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa But what's interesting over here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they don't have any doubt after that. That after you've believed in Allah, after you've believed in the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa you don't have any doubt after that. Your faith in this deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is firm. And you never look back. You have no doubt about the truthfulness or the truth of Islam, the truth of Allah, the truth of the Quran, the truth of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu This is a characteristic of the believers that they won't have doubt in that. Their faith may waver, it may go up and down, but there will not be any doubt as to the fundamentals of Islam. Then he goes on to mention that there are also those that strive in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with themselves and their wealth. So this is a reminder for ourselves that we have an obligation upon ourselves to continue to serve the deen of Allah, to continue to serve humanity, to continue to serve our communities, to continue to try to make the world a better place through our actions and through our wealth. If Allah hasn't given to you a physical ability, then do it through your wealth. If Allah hasn't given you wealth, then do it through your physical ability. If Allah has given you both, then strive hard with both. Our purpose in this dunya is to continuously strive to make this world a better place so that we do get to the akhirah, so that we do get to Jannah, so that we do attain the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is not going to be by staying in a luxurious state the whole time, by being comfortable all the time, there is an element of sacrifice that is required. The Prophet ﷺ, he tells us, Ala inna sil'at Allahi That indeed the merchandise of Allah is very expensive. And that merchandise of Allah is paradise. And that will require sacrifice on your behalf and your wealth. So that requires being committed to the pillars of Islam. That requires waking up in the middle of the night, making dua and praying. That requires reading and memorizing as much Quran as you can. That means that when you're sitting by yourself, your tongue is busy with the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It requires sacrifice that the things that you don't want to do, you strive extra hard to do them. And that is where the struggle and sacrifice is. And that is who the believers are. They are the ones that continue to struggle for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now begins to conclude the surah. So in ayah number 16, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells the people, do not think that you have done a favor to Allah by accepting Islam. Do not think you have done a favor to Allah by accepting Islam. But rather it is Allah who has done you a favor by guiding you to Islam. Allah has done us a favor by guiding us to Islam. What exactly does this mean? A lot of times shaitan may make us delusional, you know what? I'm a huge asset to the community. I'm a huge asset to my family. I'm a huge asset to so and so. I'm a huge asset to the Ummah. I do so much for the Ummah. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us, don't brag and boast about what you have achieved to Allah. Because that was only possible through Allah. Had Allah not willed it for you, it wouldn't have happened. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us that if you have indeed been guided to Islam, then be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that should be reminding us of His favor upon us. 
Look at how much Allah has given us and look at how little Allah asks in return. All of these things that we were given without asking, right? Our eyesight, our ability to breathe, our ability to see, our ability to touch, our ability to smell, our ability to love, our ability to have families, our ability to earn, our ability to prostrate, our ability to contemplate upon the creation of Allah, our ability to hear the Qur'an. Like all of these things are a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we didn't ask for. Allah just gave them to us. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has so little in return for us, from us. So here we're reminded to be grateful for our faith. Now I'm going to emphasize one point again from last week over here. Is that when it comes to our faith, you have to truly appreciate your faith. Not just by saying, Alhamdulillah, Allah guided me to Islam. But by taking it even deeper, by being someone that is truly grateful. And you will not be truly grateful for what Allah has given you in terms of guidance until you see what misguidance is really like. Now what do I mean by that? I want you to think of some of the common trends we've seen recently. Stupid young kids taking Tide Pod and drinking it. More stupid young kids doing some song challenge where they put a song on in the car, they jump out of a moving car and start dancing. Another stupid challenge based off of a movie where they put a blindfold on and they try to drive a car. This is what true misguidance looks like. And it is at that time when you understand how much like pop culture infects people, not in effects, infects people like a disease, like a virus. And Allah has protected you and your family from that, from that? Be grateful to Allah. When you see a drunk person that can't even walk straight, can no longer control how they speak, be grateful to Allah because Allah protected you from that. When you see an individual that is hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt because of their addiction to gambling, be thankful to Allah that Allah protected you from that. When you see an individual that started off with marijuana, went on to cocaine and crack, then goes on to fentanyl, and their face is all messed up, their teeth are all messed up, be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He protected you from that. You see an individual that has STDs, that has AIDS, be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He protected you from that. This is how you understand the value of the system of Islam. Because it protects you from all of those harms. It is only those things that Allah prohibited you from that cause all of those things. You stay away from those prohibitions, you'll be protected from those things. You indulge in those prohibitions, then you also suffer the consequences. So that is how you learn to value the Islam that Allah has given you. Understand the things that Allah made haram and why He made them haram and how they're harmful to us. And the things that Allah made halal, how they're beneficial to us and we should be appreciative of that. So that is something I want to re-emphasize. That look at all of these things with true deep insight. That when Allah makes something haram, it's because there's something terrible waiting behind the door. You open that door, it's going to come flooding out. And that is what we see in our society today. And Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected us from that. Then number 17. Um, actually, what did I want to say over here? Actually, Ayah 16 and 17 we, we did together. Ayah number 18, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes by saying, Surely God knows the unseen of the heavens and earth, and God is all-seeing of what you do. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about knowing the ghaib of the heavens and the earth, and seeing everything that we do.
So what we are meant to extract and reflect upon over here is that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about knowing the unseen of the heavens and the earth, we are a part of that. So when we are told to have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the struggle that we go through internally that no one else knows, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that. The sacrifices that we make that no one else knows about, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that. The suffering that we go through in trying to hold on to our faith in these times, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that. The hardship, the calamity that we go through, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that. And this ties into the concept of taqwa. People will not always be able to see your taqwa. Because part of taqwa is also refraining. So the individual that wants to lash out and seek revenge, yet they refrain from it because that is closer to taqwa. People will not see that, Allah sees that. So Allah is reminding us that He sees the unseen of the heavens and the earth. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also concludes by saying that while He knows the unseen of the heavens and the earth, He also sees what you do. He also sees what you do. So be very, very careful in the way that you interact with Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Rasulullah, and with the believers, and even with the non-believers. Right? Be very, very careful in the way that you interact with them because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala surely sees what you do. The last subtle point I'll make, and this is truly from the beauty of the Qur'an, that if you remember last week, we spoke about how Surah Al-Hujurat was revealed between two surahs. It was revealed between Surah Al-Tahrim and Surah Al-Mujadala. That's not how it's placed in the Qur'an, but in terms of revelation, it came between Surah Al-Tahrim and Surah Al-Mujadala. And the beginning of Surah Al-Mujadala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قَدْ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ قَوْلَ الَّتِي تُجَادُلُكَ فِي زَوْجِهَا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has surely heard the complaint of the wife that came complaining to you about her husband. Aisha radiallahu anha about that verse, she says that the woman came complaining to the Prophet and she whispered so lightly that even though I am in the other room, I could not hear what she was saying. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala heard it from above the seven heavens. And this is an interesting connection that this surah concludes with, Allah sees everything that you do. And the next surah that Allah revealed starts off with, Allah hears everything that you say, even the whispers that you make that no one else knows. So a reminder again of that Allah is hearing and seeing of everything that we do. So how would that impact your action? And I always like to give the example of, you're driving on the road, you see that cop car, cars, car on the side of the road. You haven't done anything wrong, but you become more attentive of your driving. Your two hands are on the wheel, you slow your pace down, you make sure you put your indicator on when you turn, you're not going to cut anyone off. Why? Because you know that maybe that cop car is looking at me. And that's how it impacts you. Similarly, if you have yaqeen, you have certainty that Allah hears what you say and sees what you do, how will that impact our actions? That is a question that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes the surah with. I pray that we've done justice in reflecting over the surah and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us tawfiq to continue to reflect over the Qur'an and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the Qur'an the spring of our hearts and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gets us ready for the month of Ramadan that is just around the corner, the month of the Qur'an that we're able to increase our recitation of the Qur'an, our memorization of the Qur'an, our contemplation and reflection over the Qur'an and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the Qur'an 
a cure for all of our sicknesses and for all our deeds. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the Quran a guide for us in this life and the next. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the Quran a hujjah for us on the day of judgment. Allahumma ameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Brothers, first question is that does, you know, the rights of a believer extend to financial rights as well, and he gave, these, gave the example that if your neighbor is in need and uh, needs to borrow money, that even for a silly reason you should lend them money. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, um, do not give the foolish people your money. Do not give foolish people your money. So that means that if they're doing something foolish, obviously you don't give them money for it. But if your neighbor is hungry, then yes, by all means, it is a sign of, a, of, of minor kufr that if you're eating, and your neighbor is hungry, and you don't share your food with them, then this is a sign of, 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 uh, of, of ingratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So yes, this even extends to financial rights, that if we see someone in need, we should either financially uh, help them, if we're unable to financially help them, take them to a resource that can help them, and if we're not even able to do that, teach them some skills through which perhaps they can sustain themselves. So that would be my advice over there. Your second question. So the general rule of thumb to mention something bad about someone is considered backbiting. To mention something bad about someone is considered backbiting. Now, are there exceptions to this? Yes, there are exceptions to this. So for example, if you're seeking advice on how to handle a situation, then it's no longer considered backbiting. If you're seeking help from someone that has the ability to help you, and you tell them something about someone, then that situation, it's not considered backbiting. When it comes to the marital or financial interests of someone and trying to protect them, then it's not considered backbiting. So someone comes to propose and they're asking, you know, about so-and-so's family. You tell them what is true, even though it may be bad. You tell them what is true, even though it may be bad, because protecting someone's marital rights and financial rights is uh, an obligation as well. They're about to go to business with someone, you know that person is not trustworthy, you should tell them that, hey, this person is not trustworthy, do not go into business with them. Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he mentioned six of them, but all of them, they come back to this concept of weighing the pros and the cons, the masalih and the mafasid. And in that situation, protecting someone and helping someone will always be the greater virtue. However, if you're doing it just for the sake of venting, or you're doing it just for the sake of creating conversation, then that is when you should stay away from it. So if there's no purpose behind it, then stay away from it. Does that make sense? Very good questions. Our sister, go ahead. So in that situation, a lot of it will come down to your intention. So I think in those situations where individuals want to vent, the small tweak you need to make is I'm venting for the sake of getting guidance or advice in return. And if you do that, then it's no longer considered ghibah. Right? Or if you're doing it with the intention of warning someone else that, hey, such and such happened to me, if you get too close to this person, it can happen to you as well, then warning an individual, that is not considered ghibah as well. So they're doing this with the intention of healing themselves. So I would say that the person that they're doing it to is a, rec is a, is a professional. So if it's like their therapist or their counselor, then that's perfectly fine. Because their therapist or counselor is not going to be involved in their personal life, and more than likely they will not know who that individual is. Right? So in that situation it would be fine. But if this individual is constantly just venting to every person that they meet, then I would say that is harmful, and that should not be done. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Very good questions. So the brother's question is a very, very interesting question. And that is the ethics of technology. You know, to what extent do governments have the right to spy upon their constituents and their citizens. 
So that can be from tapping phones to monitoring your online activities. And the general rule of thumb is innocence from that matter. That you're not allowed to tap someone's phone, you're not allowed to monitor their online activity. And the exception to that is, unless you feel that this individual is a danger, and you have evidence to substantiate that. You have evidence to substantiate that. So in that sort of situation, the tapping and the monitoring may become permissible at that time. But the general rule of thumb is that no, it is not permissible to do that even for a government. Even for a government. And this shows us the concept of you know, moral ethics that are even applicable at the, at the highest levels within Islamic governance. Very good question. So the brother's question is that if someone comes asking about a marriage proposal or asking about a business partnership, should you share with them what the community says about them or your own personal experience about them? And the answer to that is both. You tell them that, hey, from what I've heard in the community, this person is a very respectful individual and is honored and, and so on and so forth. But in my own personal experience, I had this negative experience and this is what happened. And this is what happened. So you would actually do both. You wouldn't just isolate it. Okay, we have a lot of questions. Jazakallah khair. So the brother is saying that if you've ever been mistreated, you should not be considering this as an opportunity to backbite someone, but rather you should be patient and you know, seek cons counsel with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I hope I didn't give that uh, impression that this is permission to backbite if someone wrongs you. No, that's not the case at all. You should be patient. You should go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in the situations that if you are able to fix it, you should fix it in the, within the proper channels and within the proper means by seeking help from the uh, authorities at that time. Or if you are grieving and you need that spiritual and emotional counseling, then it's okay to talk to people about it with the intention of seeking advice and counsel. So Jazakallah khair for pointing that out. Our sister over here. Is it permissible to spy on your children's activities? So for example, they have like an iPad and you want to see what they're doing. Is that your question? So I, I would say in that sort of situation, monitoring their activity in terms of what they're watching and in terms of um, the games that they're playing, that is a parental obligation upon you. As a parent, you have an obligation to protect your child from haram. So if you feel that there's a chance that they might view something haram, you should actually go and check their activity. Particularly for young boys as they get older, with the games and with the stuff that's available on the internet, you should, as a parent, it is your responsibility to make sure that they don't have access to that and that you block that. And if you find that stuff, that you have a conversation with them. So that part of it is permissible. How about going into their emails? That is completely impermissible. That will only become permissible if there's heightened suspicion of them doing something wrong. Same thing with your text messages. If you feel that they have a girlfriend, or they're you know, in an illicit relationship, or something of that nature, try talking to them about it first. And then if you find other signs that, you know what, they're staying up really late at night, you're hearing chattering in the room late at night, you hear them laughing and giggling late at night, you see other signs uh, you know, at home that they're in this illicit relationship, then at that time, as a parent, you may be able to go and do that. But before that time comes, you should stay away from that. You stay away from that. Yep. So I'll treat this as a, a two-part question. Number one, you're dealing with a Muslim and a non-Muslim. You're trying to reconcile between them. The non-Muslim is in the right. The Muslim is in the wrong. What do you do? You support both of them. You support the non-Muslim to get their rights and make sure the injustice is in taken care of. 
and then you help the Muslim by stopping them in the oppression. And that's what the Prophet says, that help your brother, whether he is oppressing or whether he is oppressed. They said, O Messenger of Allah, we understand how to help someone that is oppressed, but how do we help someone that is oppressing? And that is by stopping his oppression. The second part of your question, if you're not sure who is in the right, in these sort of situations, you always go back to the principles of Islam. So if you don't know, go to your local Imam, go to your local Sheikh, tell them, hey, this is the situation. What do I do in this situation? And in that situation, let them guide you. Let them guide you through it. Wallahu ta'ala. So the brother's asking, let's just say you're part of a committee of an organization and you have certain individuals within your organization or within your community that are causing problems. Now you as a committee are responsible for eradicating any harm that can come to your organization or to your community. Are you allowed mentioning people's names at that time? I would mention that the first step should be try to resolve it without mentioning people's names. If the issue still persists, or people are unsure who or what you're talking about, then in that situation it is permissible to mention names. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. I will make one last announcement and we will conclude. Next week's halaqa inshallah is going to be a special presentation uh, that I worked on with Dr. Nazar. Like one of the things that we are often asked about, how do we deal with difference of opinion? Madhab this says so-and-so, Madhab that says so-and-so, Sheikh this says so-and-so, Sheikh this says so-and-so. I went to the internet and gave me another opinion. How do we reconcile with all of this difference of opinion? So it's a special presentation that we guys have for you next week, inshallah. It'll be a bit of a longer halaqa. So tonight we're finishing at 9.30. Next week we'll probably finish at 10. But I promise you it'll be top quality uh, information. So do try to attend to the best of your ability. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq and life. Jazakumullah khairan for attending. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.